I V M. Is it rational to vote? Is it rational for us to think about the government as a benign entity? Amit Verma is back on the Pragati podcast to talk about public choice theory and how it can inform our thinking about governments and about public decision making. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath. I don't need to introduce Amit Verma to any of you. Amit hosts the popular Seen and the Unseen podcast on the IVM Podcast Network and was at the helm of Pragati for the past two years. He's here today to talk about public choice theory, something he also explores in his regular Bloomberg Quint column. Amit was last here on episode 34 to talk about liberty and a free society. Kannada Bharatta. I also host the Teleharte Kannada podcast, a weekly podcast about Bengaluru, Karnataka and the world. Check out episode 18 that is out this week, where we have Karthik Shashidhar talking to us about voting, elections and opinion polls. We'll start our conversation with Amit after this short break. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure that you do. We are IVM Podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So just wanted to make a note for everybody. We do have this new Alexa skill that we've created for Cyrus Says. If you have an Alexa, please say play Cyrus Says and you should be able to listen to the podcast on the Alexa from now on. Speaking of Cyrus Says, this week Cyrus is joined by Dr. Vishaka Shiv Dasani. They talk about healthy eating and nutrition and Vishaka clears Cyrus's confusion about the professions of nutritionists, dietitian, doctors and health coaches. This week on Geek Fruit, Tejas and Dinka bring on producer Zoya to discuss Interstellar and the Dark Knight trilogy and rank the on-screen portrayals of Batman. On the Sponge Podcast, Ambi Parmeshwaran talks about what makes for a great client and agency relationship and how not to get caught in intra-company crossfires. On MF101, Anupam talks to Manish Dangi, co-CIO debt at Aditya Bella Sun Life Mutual Fund about debt mutual funds, its characteristics and current scenarios. We've launched a brand new sports show called What A Player where the hosts give you insights about the latest games, scores, and strategies. Do check it out for updates about the ongoing T20 Cricket League. New episodes are out every morning. This week on Dating is Garbage, our hosts invite the first couple on the show, Naveen Narona and Abhishek Tundel, to talk about the green flags of dating. On Crocs Tales, Anand Sivakumara narrates tales of friendship, dating, and love, all centered around the phrase, Kuch Meetha Ho Jai. This week on our Kannada podcast, Thale Arate, C.V. Madhukar discusses how philanthropy and impact investing can make a difference in our society. And with that, let's get on with your show. Hi, Amit. It's such a pleasure to have you back here on the Pragati podcast. It's a greater pleasure for me to be back on your show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Amit, uh, first off, I want to say that uh, the Pragati podcast is here today and I am in podcasting today primarily because of you. Right? You gave us the nudge. You told us that this was possible and you also showed us that it was possible with the seen and the unseen. And Hamsini and I both started and now between Hamsini and me, we have three podcasts uh, that are currently active every week. Baskar Pagle Rulaiga kya? It wasn't my intention to spark anything off. I mean, I was here at Pragati and we thought, let's do more podcasts. And you guys were so amazing. Like fish to water, you just, you know, I struggled more when I started The Scene and the Unseen, but you guys were just naturals from day one. No, no, it was easier because you were here giving us lots of advice as well. But Amit, before we talk about uh, conversation today, I also wanted to mention how now it's... Uh, Pragati as the online magazine has come to a close uh, as of the end of March. And uh, so now we will be continuing as a primarily podcast and audio platform. So tell us a little bit about your journey sort of editing Pragati over the last two years. Yeah, so Pragati, I must point out, existed long before me. It was started in 2007 by uh, Nitin Pai, your colleague, uh, who also started Takshishila Institution then. And it was, it started as a PDF magazine, then it became a print magazine and it focused on policy and went out to like policymakers everywhere. It was read in the PMO and the Foreign Office and very influential. And then 2016, they took a hiatus. And around the end of 2016, um, Nitin got in touch with me and he'd known me from my blog days and he said that why don't you uh, come on board and re let's relaunch it and what we were driven by was that political discourse was so incredibly polarized everything was personalized you know you you didn't focus on the argument anymore you questioned the inten intent and parentage of the other person and we thought we want something which is we want to create a space which is not shrill not shouty where we will not focus on parties or people but we will focus on policy and ideas and obviously within Takshashila it's 
ourselves. There were a bunch of really good uh, writers and we decided we won't now position it only for like policymakers and uh, the elite, so to say, but more to anyone, uh, any thinking layperson who is curious about the world. It could be a 15-year-old boy, it could be your grandmother. And that's kind of uh, what we set out to do. And we did that successfully for a couple of years. And one of the things that worked among the many that I'm proud of on the site is that we got podcasts going. And uh, and podcasts are just like unique to me because with everything else that you do, like if you're reading a piece on the screen or whatever, all the other distractions in the world apply. You can click on Netflix, you can get up and go and make a cup of coffee, you can look out of the window, you can do all kinds of other things. Podcasts are a unique use case in a sense because people listen to podcasts while doing one of three things mostly, which is commuting, exercising or doing household errands. Though the third not so much in India because, you know, how domestic help and all of that. But uh, in though I, I do listen sometimes while cooking if it's uh, automatic, but I listen while working out and commuting. Therefore, you have an almost captive audience. A guy has decided to listen to the thing. He is listening. The level of engagement that you can get on a long podcast uh, where you're not constrained by space is also wonderful because once you can make a guest relax and, you know, then they can just go on and you can go into tangents, you can go into depths and nuances and all of that. So I think what I'm proud of at Pragati is that we have, like at the time of uh, leaving, we had like five podcasts which would come out every week. You know, you you have a couple of podcasts, Pragati podcasts, Tale Arate in Kannada, Hamsini has states of anarchy, uh, Prani and Saurav have the Hindi podcast, Pulyabazi. And I'm proud that we created a culture of that. And I'm looking forward with great excitement to how Takshishila takes that forward. Thanks, Amit. And, uh, you know, we're having this conversation on the eve of elections. And honestly, I'm hard-pressed to see where there are enough conversations where one person is not shouting. And I don't think it's a conversation if one person is shouting. Right? So all of television is sort of gone Either they're shouting or even if it's a more cogent discussion, people get three minutes to make a point, four minutes to uh, rebut something, not really necessarily go into the depth that many of India's various challenges deserve. Right. So I'm, I mean, we're still small, but I, I like the fact that we have the space. I love the fact that I have the space where I can just come and have a conversation with someone for an hour and you know, other people actually want to listen to it. I think, you know, the key here is that I had an episode with Ashok Malik once on Indian television and his insight there was that television licenses and generally costs of just operating a station are so high that everyone who's paid those hundreds of crores or whatever to start a channel has no option then but to cater to the lowest common denominator to get their money back and therefore the shoutiness that you see on Republican times now and the nuance that is absent everywhere because uh, you want to attract the lowest common denominator and you have to. Those are your imperatives. Those are your incentives because you put in so much money. That's also why, for example, FM radio is all so populist because um, FM uh, licenses are so high that this you can't do a niche. You have to cater to the lowest common denominator. While if you look at New York, they have, I think you guys had an episode on the Pragati podcast with Amit Doshi where he made a similar point yeah. that New York has so many FM stations because it's not so expensive to get in there so you can try and target different niches and we are fortunate in the sense that look if you had to buy a podcast license for 10 crores then everybody who did a podcast would have to put Bollywood music or or cricket or cricket or things like that so we are fortunate that uh, the barriers to entry are practically nothing and we can go in there and and then the thing is that everybody finds their niche they can experiment for free and they find their space and they get their audience you know my show has a certain audience your show has a slightly different audience it's wonderful and it's amazing and I think that's what gives me hope that fine that this course is whatever it is but there are all kinds of quiet nooks and corners where people are having these kind of conversations no I'm, I'm amazed at some of the recent episodes you've had You've touched what two hours now in an episode. Yeah, so I've, it's I've, incredible yeah, it's, that yeah. and that's a podcast, and now so many people are actually tuning in and listening to it. Though my pro tip here is always listen at double speed. I can't stand myself at normal speed. It's horrible. Same. I, I one point five, one point six for me minimum. Yeah. Uh, but uh, okay, so let's get on with our topic of the show, and it's also relevant for us to have this conversation on the eve of the national elections in India. Amit, you've been talking about uh, public choice and public choice theory for quite some time and how it can shed new light on, you know, why things are the way they are when it comes to the government in India and with other things. So 
Tell me a little about what public choice is all about. So public choice is really my favorite branch of economics. And I keep saying that it's, see, economics to me, you know, it's not some arcane subject. Economics is a subject of human behavior under conditions of scarcity. But basically, it's the study of human behavior. And public choice is a branch of that which has incredible insights for the state of India today. If you want to understand the Indian state, the Indian government, why are people corrupt? Why do politicians behave the way they do? All of those things. And it helps in the central insight of public choice theory is this, that people in government, whether they're politicians or bureaucrats, are human beings who respond to incentives. So, you know, economists speak in terms of incentives and they're like, okay, uh, this is how within this market different parties behave, these are the incentives they have. Uh, and you must also think of uh, government like that. And when you look at government action, everything becomes explicable if you look at it through the lens of interest. Now, I write a, a monthly column for Bloomberg Quint, uh, which is called Politics Without Romance, which is a phrase by James Buchanan, the father of public choice theory, in a sense, uh, because politics without romance is what public choice theory is. You look at politics without romance, you look at the incentives, the people, the, you know, how people really are. And um, uh, the first column of those, in fact, examined a question that people often ask a lot that, you know, back in the days of independence, we had so many great leaders, uh, you know, but today you look at all the politicians, they're all venal, corrupt guys. Why? And people bemoan it as if, you know, oh, we had good people, then we have bad people now. But yeah, no. lots of nostalgia, gone are the great days of, you know. Yeah. These stalwart leaders who yeah. could... Uh, Whether it's Nehru or Patel or whoever your favorite uh, uh, hero of choices. But my point is that it's not that we had great leaders then and we had great leaders now. We had great incentives then. And the incentives that we have now are guaranteed to produce us venal crooks. And the reason for that, for example, is that what animated the people who fought for India's freedom... Uh, they had no chance of getting to government. They had no chance of getting to power and making money from it. So those sort of baser instincts were not there. People who wanted to make money or have power over others did other things. They did not fight for India's freedom because uh, um, uh, the, the risk-reward ratio was way out of whack. Uh, so all of these people were high-minded people who were driven by principles and so on and so forth. And therefore, you have all these great leaders. And if you look at that generation of leaders in the 30s and 40s and so on, the Nehru's and Patel's and even the Prashad Mukherjee's and so on, it doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you are, they are animated by higher principles, whether or not you specifically agree with those principles. What we have today is that you're animated by different things. The state is such a bloated beast and there is so much power that typically what are the incentives for a politician? The incentives for a politician is I want to win the next election and come to power. So, he needs two things for this. One is he needs money because elections in India are incredibly costly. The money comes to him from special interest groups. And that means that they want a quid pro quo of some sort. So it could be, for example, an association of small retailers who pays you money. And in return for their funding you, you have to look after their interests, maybe by banning FDI in retail. So and this is a very concrete example because BJP until recently used to be against FDI in retail because they were a party funded by small retailers. And the Ahmadmi Party in Delhi still is against FDI in retail. And you have any kind of interventions in markets like that. Typically, what they're doing is they're harming the consumer at large to the benefit of the small interest group. In this case, they're harming all the consumers who would benefit from a more competitive retail market. And they're benefiting the small retailers in question. And so people say, for example, Arvind Kejriwal isn't corrupt. But hey, you know, what is this? Corruption is an inbuilt part of the political, the electoral system. But anyway, I don't want to, you know, we shouldn't name a specific politics. So the point is that this is one of the incentives the politicians today are driven by, the interest groups at play on whose money they are dependent. So it is not just that, you know, Prime Minister Modi, people say, is captured by Ambani Adani. It's like, come on, I mean, every government was ever was captured by Ambani. You basically have, you know, different kinds of interest groups running the show. And the second kind of pressure group is voters, because India's politics is all identity politics. It's a first-past-the-vote system. Uh, it's a very fractured electorate. And and therefore, every election typically goes down to figuring out which are your vote banks. Will this caste support me? Will that particular class of people support me? What is your vote bank? And then catering to that vote bank and using patronage to benefit that vote bank in some way so that you uh, get their votes. So therefore, all politicians are caught up in this endless cycle between power and money where they necessarily have to play these kind of games and sell themselves out completely to get to power, which then ensures that the only kinds of people that politics attracts 
are people like that people who don't mind their principles being corroded and uh, all of that uh, who don't really care about the public service because where's the incentive now those kind of people you won't see in politics anymore it's people like this so in a sense when we're talking about public choice then basically you're saying that people in power or government itself and uh, those who are taking decisions are also governed by the same kind of economic logic that governs markets and so on so in that sense a politician here is a rational maximizer right, right of right, some sort right. where they're sort of maximizing their interest which is how do if i'm in power how do i stay in power and how do i get reelected and um, so so in this context i want to ask about this voting process right so you talked about identity politics a little but so we as voters uh, if we are notionally rational people why should we vote uh, especially when there are corrupt politicians with uh, other interests uh, on the other side that's a rational question and that leads to let me first answer questions of why we should not vote and then i'll come to why we should vote sure. and i'll have more reasons of the former kind but i think we should look at both sides of the case um there are three reasons why um, uh, we should not bother about voting one is what uh, economists call rational ignorance now here's the thing you and i both know that uh, it is likely that our single vote is not going to influence an election we might go to vote anyway on the day of voting but we know that a single vote is very unlikely to influence an election therefore uh, since the benefit of that single vote is so little it is rational also not that the cost should be little and that we don't spend too much on it what does that mean that means that voters don't spend enough time understanding the processes of government and what uh, different policies different parties have and how the state works and so on it doesn't make sense for them to spend too much time studying those things because the benefit is very little one vote is not going to do much so it is rational for them to be ignorant that's called rational ignorance and uh, in fact there's a philosopher jason brennan who will be on my show soon i've already recorded with him who in a uh, book not the one i'm talking about on my episode with him but in a separate book examines the ethics of voting uh, jason brennan and he uh, in fact makes the argument that it is immoral to vote if you don't know enough that uh, if you are ignorant then your vote could do more harm than good and therefore that is a reason to not vote but i mean that's a normative argument for not voting but if we look at it in practical terms uh, rational ignorance is why you will find that voters tend to be ignorant and that many of them because they're ignorant they decide what's the point and they just is rational not to vote as well um second reason which is kind of related and which has something to do with public choices if you look at all of politics it involves a redistribution of resources from the many to the few right so for example in the example that i'd used earlier uh, banning fdi in retail all the consumers at large lose a little value and all of that goes to uh, certain interest groups and that's known as diffuse costs and concentrated benefits the costs are diffused so if i have had like if i'm getting 2 rupees a month taken away from my pocket i don't really give a damn but you take away you do that from 20 million people and then you give 40 million rupees to one interest group it matters a lot for that interest group so that interest group will then be very motivated and very incentivized to interfere in politics and do things but for me because i am uh, you know um, it's only 2 rupees i may not even know it's the unseen effect as it were i may not even know i'm losing that 2 rupees i won't be that incentivized or motivated to actually go out and vote or to protest in other ways and because people very often don't know the harm that is being done to them because it's an unseen effect it's what does not happen uh, you know they don't get that extra value from something they don't know they haven't got it that uh, they might be apathetic about voting a third reason not just for not voting but for also not for participating in civic action is what what is called the free rider problem which is that for example somewhere let us say a dam is coming up it will do a lot of damage so you will find you know the medha patkar and those activists said they will be leading it and uh, there will be those normal ngo groups which will be leading it which have their own incentives but whatever but let us say that you know that the dam affects you adversely or the policy affects you adversely but you will say it's affecting a million people adversely mai kyu jao let them do the action in a similar way if there is like a bad a politician or somebody who should be out of power it is tempting therefore to think that mai kyu jao my vote won't make a difference mai kyu jao let others vote the person out let others put in the effort and in a democracy the free rider problem is a bit of a problem 
a fourth reason for voting which is actually my reason for not voting and it only applies if all the options are equally unpalatable so i would consider it my duty to go out and vote if i found that one party was substantially better than the rest but if all the parties are equally bad perhaps unwise in the long run to choose the least evil option instead of not voting at all because think of the political marketplace as a marketplace let's say i want to buy a shirt i go to the mall all the shirts there are crap right so the best thing for me to do is to not settle for the worst shirt and to not buy a shirt at all and my not buying a shirt uh, the absence of the activity sends a signal to the market that there is a gap in the marketplace and some entrepreneur will come and fill the gap similarly by not voting uh, you know you can see the statistics that these many percentage of people don't vote and any political entrepreneur can then see that and say that there is so much apathy these people there's a gap in the market let us go in and try to fill the gap and this is especially valid in what is a fractured marketplace where you can get 25% of the vote and win a seat and if 25% of the people aren't voting then it makes sense for somebody to an entrepreneur to say that yahan pe gap hai i'm going in there and in a sense uh, without necessarily parsing those numbers that is what uh, arvind kejriwal did with the aam aadmi party he recognized that there was widespread apathy among voters and that there was widespread disillusionment with the existing political parties and he positioned himself quite perfectly and quite brilliantly as an alternative who was different from the rest and he went in and he occupied that space which in that limited political marketplace of delhi at that time worked now whether you think much of kejriwal or not as it happens i don't this illustrates the point that if there is a gap in the marketplace somebody may come and fill it and i think therefore it is my duty as a citizen to indicate my dissatisfaction with all of the choices available these are all arguments for not voting in a sense even the trump came into power in a similar manner right one of the reasons why a lot of the polls went wrong a lot of the predictions went wrong was that trump was able to mobilize people who would generally not vote mm. and get them to the polling booths in much much larger numbers and you know tip the balance and again created a market and you can call it a, a perverse market but he created a space where uh, he could get enough people to vote for whatever he claimed to stand for that's spot on and also what uh, even before uh, you know the elections happened out there and i wrote a column uh, sort of speculating on why um, uh, trump may get either more or uh, may do better or worse than people anticipate and my speculation on why he may do much better than what the poll suggest is because of something called preference falsification which is that when a pollster asks you certain questions you tend to often go with the social consensus in terms of what you are stating right. and if you know if the people around you view trump as whatever as a bigoted guy or as a complete whatever you don't own up to saying i'll vote for trump but when the time comes you go out and and you actually vote for trump which is you know what economists call reveal preferences where your actions count more than your words and i think with a lot of people because of this sort of elite condescension of trump voters so to say they wouldn't have said that we will vote for trump but they went out and voted for him anyway and you might see less of that falsification uh, in the 2020 elections because um, you know the both sides are now so polarized and its people are more open about saying that they support him and well he is the sitting president but that's again a case of how the incentives come into play where there is a factor of social desirability that you don't want to you know uh, but at the same time you're doing what uh, you want to do you know it's uh, this is funny because i have lost count of the number of nonprofits media houses and others who have done these pre election um, voter surveys in india where they ask uh, people in various constituencies you know what issue matters to you the most or um, is corruption important to you would you vote for a corrupt politician you're going to say yes corruption matters to me and no i will not vote for a corrupt politician because who will actually come out and say in a survey that yeah i don't care about corruption but then they'll go and vote for exactly who they want to vote right uh, but but in this so you've given me a lot of good reasons why um, one shouldn't vote uh, and uh, the odd thing about india seems to be that a large number of people somehow still end up voting uh, right i mean what 60 to 70% of indian uh, electorate votes that's a higher percentage than the united states and many other major reasonably well functioning democracies uh, in the world and even here you know we see urban numbers being lower but, but uh, from what i can sense Uh, even our election apparatus uh, is of a sort where 
you know, we're not able to capture mobility well. So even the urban vote, if they say, oh, it's only 45%, that might be an undercount actually, because, you know, 20% no longer live in that city. Uh, so given that there are so many people who are crazy enough to go out and vote, why, what are the reasons yeah. to go I'll, and vote? I'll speculate on A, why they do vote huh. and B, why they should vote because I am torn myself uh, over this. I can see both sides of the question. One reason people have speculated why they do vote is that in a sense, the act of voting for the party of your choice is almost like a tribal act similar to supporting your football team by going to the stadium and watching them match. So let's say you are a Mumbai Indians fan or a Manchester United fan or whatever the case may be, though I know many Indian Manchester United fans who've never been to Manchester, but leave that aside. But it's like, okay, so you support this cricket team and it becomes like a tribal act of solidarity and kinship to actually go to the stadium and cheer for your team or even gather with your friends and you all have beers and you punch the air. And though I don't think real fans behave like that, that's just what they show on TV when fans are watching whatever, right? high five yeah who does a high five in real life when somebody hits a four uh, or maybe i'm just old and jaded by now so that's that's kind of one reason that it's a signaling thing that they are signaling their membership and their kinship of these people that they feel solidarity with which might be also valid given how much of india's politics takes place along lines of identity one possible reasons among many others I, it would be absolutely simplistic to say this is the main reason or anything like that i mean a lot of people know doubt do hope for change and so on and so forth uh, but I think the reason why one should vote the normative reason is that look we are a democracy and the thing is that even if one vote doesn't make a difference it might still be considered you might still say that no it is still my duty even if it doesn't make a difference to go out and vote because if everybody does this then you know there is in the end a difference and if I make the effort of going out and voting, then I, because I am, you know, taking that cost upon myself, I will then, I might then make the effort to justify that cost of actually going and voting by actually being more of an informed citizens about things that matter so I can make a, a, a good choice. So in that sense, I think you should, for example, it's, it's this, and I'm just thinking aloud here and might not make sense, but I think just in the same way that I think it makes sense for us to normatively follow certain rules in our lives, even if in a particular instance, we might be able to breach it. For example, you might have a rule that I will uh, never lie. And, uh, or for example, you know, I'll, I'll take a much simpler example. When I drive around, if I'm turning left, I always turn the indicator to left. Now I do this even when there is only a left and everybody is going left and I, it's one o'clock in the morning and there's no one on the road with me. But I do it anyway. It's a normative act. What this means is that A, I am saving effort by automating this process and B, it means that at all times I will do this and there is never an occasion where I need to do it, where it so happens that I don't do it. And you could say this uh, applies to ethical behavior as well, how you treat other people with courtesy and so on. For example, should you tip at a restaurant that you are never going to go to again if you're traveling? Now, I make it a point always to uh, uh, leave a tip. And the thing is, then the question comes up is if I'm visiting a city and I'm never going to go to that restaurant again, should I tip? And sometimes it's just a good thing to always tip and there might be different opinions on this. And you could say you could in a cold way say it's rational not to tip. But you could also in a similar way say that it is rational to tip every time because that is normatively a good way to behave uh, within uh, society. They're both rational. So or as far it's as, just become a habit now, right? I mean, yeah. It's a habit. So in the sense what you talked about, cheering a particular football club or a political party, the other is also to say that, look, I have done my duty. Yeah. Right. I'm a citizen. I need to go vote in elections. Yeah, I've, done. I've done my duty. I've done my part. Now, if we get a good government or not, at least I've done my job. And what's more, if you sort of have a, a package of behavioral items which make you a good citizen and voting is one of them, then why is that package not something that you do normatively instead of making case by case exceptions? So that is a case that I would make for voting. Though I'll be honest enough and tell you that I'm not going to vote this time because I am deeply disappointed at all the choices and I want to send that signal to the marketplace that come on some political entrepreneur, come and give me something better than this. Uh, or perhaps I'm just rationalizing my natural uh, half Bengali laziness and I don't have a voter <laughs> ID card so I'll have to jump through bureaucratic hoops to get one. So maybe I'm rationalizing that. So. 
So I, I am hoping to go and vote in these elections and I'm not trying to do virtual signaling right now. Uh, and uh, yeah, to me personally, it's it's not that expensive. I don't value my time that highly that I can't do this once every two, three years where I go up to the polls and vote. And sometimes you feel good and sometimes you get to do it as a family so that, that there is uh, that uh, element of it as well. And it's not terribly inconvenient anymore. It's, it's I cool. wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this, Amit. So let's uh, take a short break and we'll come back uh, on this episode of the Pragati Podcast to talk about how public choice uh, theory can help explain various things that can go wrong with the government. Hi, my name is Anupam Gupta. I'm B50 on Twitter. I am the host of Pesa Pesa, the show that talks money. On my show, I speak to experts from every field of money and finance, from stock markets, equities, debt funds, credit cards, life insurance, every possible area of money and finance that you can think of. We even did an episode on cryptocurrency. I've got fantastic guests from mutual funds to personal finance experts everywhere. robo advisory, startups, just name it, we've got it. At Pesa we help you make smart decisions about money. You work hard for money. Now make your money work hard for you. New episodes out every Monday and you can listen to my show on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you have. Pesa Vesa is brought to you by Paytm Money. Welcome back to the Prakriti Podcast. I'm Pavan Srinath and I have with me uh, Amit Verma here in studio today. Amit, we've been talking about public choice theory and we've talked about the the rational calculus of uh, voting and uh, the incentives that drive politicians to behave the way politicians behave. But what about people who are spending their careers working in government? What about bureaucrats in service? What kind of incentives typically drive uh, most bureaucracies? Good question. And, you know, typically the idealized view of bureaucrats is that these are career civil servants who are chosen through a very tough process of selection. They are going to be efficient. They're going to be highly intelligent, well-trained within this uh, well-oiled system of government. Surely they will do the right thing. But again, you have to consider their incentives and nothing, uh, you know, sort of sums it up better than what is famously known as Parkinson's Law, which was framed in this book called Parkinson's Law by C. Northcote Parkinson. And if I may quote from that, uh, Parkinson's law says, quote, work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. Stop <laughs> quote, which I think all of us know whenever we have to do something. And uh, two of the necessary uh, corollaries of this are, quote, an official wants to multiply subordinates, not rivals, stop quote, and quote, officials make work for each other. Stop quote. And what it kind of tells you is that the natural tendency for any bureaucrat is to want to increase his power, to have a bigger department, to have bigger budgets, to be more influential and, and to feel more relevant, to justify their position more. So, in fact, there's a, um, a famous author called William A. Niskanen who, who's uh, written pioneering books on this in the late 60s and 70s and so on, including a famous book called Bureaucracy and Public Economics. So, he says that bureaucrats are motivated by, quote, salary, perks of the office, public reputation, power, patronage, and the ease of managing the bureau. Stop quote. And the result of this is that um, every bureaucrat will attempt to expand his power and you will simply never have an occasion when a bureaucrat is giving up any power. Let me tell you a great story of this. Have you ever heard of this government department that used to exist in Tamil Nadu called CCA? I've heard of it. but Let me tell you the story because it's a great story and I love telling it. So in about 1984, and I think Vivek Debroy first told the story in an old book of his, so credit where that is due. In 1984, uh, the central government got uh, an application from a government department of the, uh, in the government of Tamil Nadu, as far as I recall. Uh, and the department was called CCA and the department was applying for higher budgets, right? So he decided, let me look into what is the CCA and what do they need higher budgets for? So he looked into it. And uh, his investigation, his forensic investigation into the origins of CCA took him back to World War II. Now, uh, so what happened there was when World War II was on, Winston Churchill, who used to uh, smoke cigars, used to get his cigars from Cuba. So the supply lines from Cuba dried up. So instead, what he uh, decided to do is the second best cigars in the world, apparently, were in a factory somewhere near what was then Madras, 
right so i think that the trichinopoly cigars wherever i don't know where they're from but it was somewhere in tamil nadu uh, you had good cigars happening so churchill started getting his cigars from this place in uh, tamil nadu and the imperial office and at that time of course india was part of uh, the british empire so a department was set up which would get him those cigars and the department was called cca churchill cigar assistant Right. So CCA stands for Churchill Cigar Assistant. The department was set up at the time of the Second World War to send cigars to Churchill. World War II has ended. Supply lines between Cuba and England are open. Winston Churchill is out of power. Winston Churchill has died. Okay. Huh? India has become independent. And we've come all the way to 1984. And that department called the Churchill Cigar Assistant is still running, still has a budget, still has a undersecretary or whatever who has the gall to apply for a raise. right a, a, a raise in the budget and what this kind of illustrates is that once you add a little bit of responsibility or power to government no one's given it up bro it's like uh, so government never gets smaller it only gets bigger and bigger in all these mad different directions and in this particular case of course the department was abolished when the central secretary or whatever just send what was i would i suppose would have been bureaucracy's equivalent of wtf bro what are you doing and uh, so the department went off but this kind of illustrates how bureaucrats are always going to add to their power as far as possible and this is a process which is quite separate from who the politician and power maybe or what his incentives may be politicians doing his own thing up on top with state exchequer bureaucrat meanwhile is quietly sitting expanding his power and managing his risk to reward ratio and seeing that everything flows well so this budget maximization drive is something that i've come across many times and there are a few who have used it to their advantage so if you know that these are the interests of someone in power like for example um, you know before the JNNURM started, and the reason I like that um, National Urban Renewal Mission scheme is simply because it was the first time sort of the government of India woke up and said, "Hey, cities are important to us." Right? Not so much about what happened with the scheme, and that happened because um, the Urban Development uh, Ministry was almost like a punishment posting. You know, it's a small department. You know, rural development has always been uh, gigantic, so therefore the person in charge would not have a large budget to command. but supposing india started this national mission on uh, urban renewal then it is in the interest of that uh, person in charge over there to bat for it because uh, ultimately he or she also gets a much larger budget at their disposal so this seems to happen at all levels right so one is maximizing their budgets and then creating more work to meet the budget yeah and this is why you know no matter what party comes into power saying minimum government and maximum governance or whatever nonsense so i don't think prime minister modi ji even intended to carry out uh, those promises of his but even had he intended the pushback would have been enormous because the point is politicians are on a tangent of their own bureaucrats are in a tangent of their own arguably bureaucrats are more powerful in a sense because they hold all the levers of the state so supposing for example you have the ayush ministry which does homeopathy and ayurveda and you know all of that uh, stuff and uh, you decide that no we need to abolish this department it's a waste of taxpayers money we are inflicting violence on tax players for what not for this but the point is politician gives the order it goes to bureaucrat he says ha sir karte hai main committee bithata hu because there are 8000 people who work here how do we fire them what do we do blah 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 blue 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 procedures kya hai committee bithate hai committee will sit committee will come back after 6 months then there will be this procedural problem then the ministry of finance will get involved this ministry falana ministry dimkana ministry and before you know it the politician is focused on the short term imperative of winning the next election which is giving farm loan waiver or whatever it is and these structural reforms are forgotten and shit never happens and everything grows and even that committee you set up in the first place becomes a permanent committee and that's the nature of the beast it's like it's mind blowing what do you do so in this uh, I mean, one thing i feel is like you know yes minister the show from the 80s um pretty much talks about every one of these issues right i mean many times when we're talking about lots of things happening in indian politics we teach public policy courses as well honestly i think i can learn more from that show than uh, most of the courses that i attend but what i found interesting was that even that show was created in the light of public choice uh, theory and ideas coming to the fore right 
you know yes minister is mind blowing and why is it that people love that show and find it so funny because like all great humor it has that ring of truth that they see what is happening and they're like you know it's both real and it's funny like for example another great uh, book uh, that uh, uh, you know captures the nature of the indian state and was written in the late 1960s is rag darbari by shri lal shukla now i can guarantee you that shri lal shukla ji never read james buchanan or william niskanen or any of these people gordon tullock but he had the artist eye for what is at the core of every situation and he captures the absurdity of the indian state and the indian bureaucracy so beautifully that you know and that's why that book is such a revered classic in india and it's just magnificent and uh, you know what is art supposed to do art is supposed to reveal the human condition which both uh, yes minister and uh, ragdarbari do but also the human condition can be revealed by the social sciences public choice economics can also then in a forensic way explain why is it that people behave in these absurd ways and explain why something like churchill cigar assistant exists till 1984 and why it is rational for that to be the case so i mean given so all of this so so the bureaucrat then so one work expands budgets expand there is also risk aversion because playing it safe means right. that you don't get into trouble taking a risk means maybe there's a reward but you know more if things go wrong then you're in more trouble and the reward can't be that you get to double your salary or your position or something right you're still in that same system with uh, of uh, slowly escalating ladder that goes upwards so given all of this can we also talk a little bit about how um, corruption can be broken down into different things um, by public choice uh, theory yeah i think you know the thing is corruption is india's great big problem but it is a symptom it is not a root cause of any specific disease right and i think uh, you know most indians all indians would agree that corruption is a huge problem but i don't think there's enough of an adequate uh, appreciation of what causes corruption corruption is not caused by bad people ki ye afsar hai ye matlab haram khor hai ye ye hai ye wo hai ye corrupt hai ganda aadmi hai you put a good person there the good person won't take a bribe no that is not what causes corruption is caused by power right you give one set of people power over another set of people they will be corrupt because as lord acton said power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and i would sort of say something which seems extremist but i kind of believe in it i would say power always corrupts it is in the nature of power to corrupt because your incentives change completely now what the problem with the indian state is that i often say the indian state is both too large and too weak it's too weak because it doesn't do the few things it ought to do properly like maintain rule of law or whatever the few basic things reasonable people can all agree on doesn't have enough manpower doesn't have state capacity doesn't do them properly it is too large because it has too much procedure it might have too few people in some places it has too much procedure in some other places now what is that procedure that procedure is for example if you are starting a business and you need 40 licenses and for each one somebody has a power to end your dreams mm. so you have to pay them right and you know like uh, i did an uh, episode on restaurant regulations uh, many months ago and one of the revelations in in that episode was that restaurant regulations at least in karnataka they have these two conflicting regulations where uh, the excise people or, or rather the people who look after alcohol say that a restaurant should only have one entrance so they can monitor the inflow and outflow of alcohol only one entrance that is mandated the fire department mandates that for safety purposes you have to have more than one entrance so you have multiple entrances now the point is you whatever you however many entrances you do you are breaking the law if you have one entrance fire department will come after you if you have two entrances like the um, uh, alcohol guys will come after you so you have to bribe one of them and the truth of the matter is you don't have to bribe one of them you have to bribe two of them and you have to bribe the other 30 authorities involved which and this enough on the margins is enough to stop new businesses opening and to drive many existing businesses which would otherwise be barely profitable out of business and all of this is because you're giving discretion to government servants who have the power to use this and if you think about it you know a lot of what people who should be looking after the rule of law stopping violence investigating murders and rapes 
a lot of that effort instead goes on into figuring out how can we make money on the side because of all these bad laws. Like many years back, I had written a column called the Matunga Racket. And what the Matunga Racket was at that time, 377 was still on the cards, mm. uh, which made homosexual sex effectively illegal. So what the Matunga uh, Racket would do is that these cops would go on these online forums, you no know, grinder in those days were in 2007, 2008. They would go on these online forums and they would pretend to be um, uh, gay men looking for other gay men and they would call so and so to a spot near Matunga station and the poor chap would turn up expecting an exciting rendezvous and three cops would surround him and they would say okay we'll file 377 or we'll call your home and tell your parents or whatever unless ATM jate hai, put the guy's card in take out whatever they feel like so on and so forth so I, I, I wrote about it and it was a very common racket and now it can't take place why? because the discretion in the context of that law is gone that law is gone so you cannot anymore catch a gay man at a railway station and extort money from him like this and a lot of what these bad laws do a lot of what these bad regulations do is they amount to extortion and the people who are supposed to protect your rights instead become the people who are extorting money from you. And so this has been a bit of a tangent, but my central point is that to end corruption, the best way to do it is a, is a twofold thing. One is you reduce the discretion of the government in areas where the government has no business being. Like the government has no business being in your bedroom as they were with 377. You remove laws like that. And the government has no business deciding which business should exist and isko license it or usko nahi license it. Take it out of that, you know, have complete ease of business. Remove all of that uh, rent seeking. That is one way. And the other way is in areas where government does have to have power because there has to be a rule of law in certain areas government will have power in those areas you figure out ways and to change the incentives by making it more accountable and the key to that is by having governance which is as local as possible like uh, on the scene and the unseen i'd had my guest shruti rajgopal and who's actually a much bigger expert in public choice uh, economics and i could ever claim to be i'm just an enthusiast and uh, shruti uh, spoke about urban governance from the point of the mismatch over power and governance that your local legislator who you have control over uh, you have power over doesn't actually he can't do anything for you and the people who can do something for you are the state legislatures who depend on the rural vote they don't give a shit about you so if governance is as local as possible if cities have strong empowered mayors village panchayats are empowered as uh, they are to some degree now and you fix all of those local governance problems then you make them more accountable so dual solution reduce uh, discretion where not required and where you need the presence of the state make it more accountable by making government more local and fix Figuring out other ways for better incentives. So, in a way, this is also bringing in many market principles into even governmental thinking, right? So, so one along with discretion, while I mean, local can be a lot better. One of the big challenges happens when there are local monopolies, right? True. So, in in one area, somebody has complete control. So, they have absolute power. Over a tiny geography, which does not necessarily lead to better outcomes. I agree. You need competition. Uh, and uh, to me, one of the really nice things I saw happen in Karnataka over the last uh, decade or so is, uh, you know, there was a point in time when, say, if I had to get a driving license and I lived in, I don't know, Maleshwaram in Bangalore, I had to go to the Maleshwaram Regional Transport Office and then, you know, you have the touts, you have the driving schools, you have that whole ecosystem. They have that, the power of the monopoly, they uh -huh. use it to extort. So, and then you have to do all kinds of things, even to get a learner's license and then a driving license. And then at one point, the Karnataka government, I think, just decided uh, that, uh, you know, they're just going to open this up. The state is giving you a license. So, if you're a resident of the state, go to whichever RTO you find convenient and you can get it done. So, I can go to Koramangla, I can go to Jainagar. Yes, the distance might be a little more. But apart from that, now citizens had the agency to go and choose the slightly less corrupt RTO where at least, you know, you could get things done a little more quickly or you had a little more certainty where maybe you knew that you had to wait a certain time, but you knew that you would get it. You know, there have been so many cases, I think, um, with a learner's license, you have to do like a 15 multiple choice questions, right? And you have to pass, I think, 13 or 12. And a lot of people would say, would get 11. Saying, oh, you've only got 11? Come back next time and you can then uh, pass the thing. So that kind of discretionary power, simply because there was competition, the equilibrium level of uh, corruption reduced. 
and even today RTOs are corrupt. But I would argue that slightly less, less than. Yeah, I, I I think that's a fantastic example, and I think what that also illustrates is that you should not think. You know, when you're thinking of solutions, you should not set utopian standards for them. You should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like you said, these RTOs will still be corrupt, but they'll be less corrupt because they're competing with each other to attract customers who will pay bribes, and that is an improvement on the previous system where you had a monopolistic uh, discretion, and uh, therefore you could be basically as corrupt as you want to. Uh, you could get away with in that. Uh, the the uh, same when it comes to laws, right? I mean, you talked about badly framed laws. I mean, we had this uh, IT Act, Section sixty six A, which finally got taken down. Right. I mean, it had horrendous language on, you know, just behavior online, where you could drive a truck through uh, something, right? Oh, if you're hurting public sentiments or um, something vague and loose like that, the government could come after you and file a case. So, which is why. Um, I think innocent people posting messages on Facebook got uh, arrested by the police. Which is not just the uh, IT law; it's even 295A, 153A, the laws in the Indian Penal Code, which again are imprecisely framed because they are like a threat to public order or whatever, right. uh, you know, um, uh, offending religious sentiments, uh, and and which can't even be challenged because the justification for them is uh, in uh, uh, the exceptions laid out in I think Article 191A in the Indian Constitution, which. Basically, the the first part of that guarantees the right to free speech, but then adds so many caveats that is meaningless, like public order, decency, and you're giving the authorities the discretion to decide what is public order and what is decency and so on. Though in this particular case, I must say that the problem with these laws is not that they're used for end-seeking or extortion. To the best of my knowledge, that doesn't happen much, but that they are misused by miscreants who file cases against you unnecessarily when really we should have absolute free speech in this country. Right. So in a sense, it empowers more. And yeah. it also empowers errant governments who want yeah. to crack down on uh, dissent. Exactly, exactly. So if a government wants to crack down on dissent, this is a very powerful tool to use and it has a chilling effect because you arrest uh, one kid for putting up an anti-establishment Facebook post and uh, then, uh, you know, 30 other kids who might have also done that will not do that anymore and that harms democracy. But that's, of course, a tangent. But, you know, going back to something you said earlier, you know, where you gave your insights on how competition within uh, the framework of government itself, like in those giving driving licenses in Karnataka, can help uh, reduce corruption uh, and you refer to that as market principles I would say that you know market for a lot of people just a very term market based or market principle seems to be a pejorative for some reason I have written articles I have colleagues who have written articles on newspapers where they've used the word market the entire article has been reprinted but the word market has been removed yeah so I would I would actually call it and more accurately I would call it principles of human behavior because it is you know you don't need economics or an understanding of markets to realize that humans respond to incentives which kind of brings me to another point that you know a lot of people will often say ki yaar this government is headed by an authoritarian madman but you put the right people in charge everything will be okay and my point to that always is that no the solution is not the right people in charge the solution is a system where the incentives are such that whoever is in charge will do the right things or will not be able to do damage. That's what you need. You know, I had an episode on the emergency with the historian Gyan Prakash and he pointed out that even though you look at the emergency of Indira Gandhi as a monstrous act on her part, uh, everything she did was legitimate according to the constitution. The framers of the constitution, because they wrote the constitution at a time when the country was in much turmoil outside, gave a lot of power to the center, which they may not have under other circumstances, which the center should not have in a democratic republic. And Indira Gandhi managed to use those powers to suspend democracy. And uh, But those were in the constitution. They were out there. So the system was flawed. It could have been some other uh, demagogue and not her. Similarly, you know, when a few months back, Modi arrested a bunch of these uh, activists like Arun Ferreira and Gautam Navlakha and so on. And there was much criticism correctly of those actions. But the issue there wasn't Modi per se. All of these people were arrested under laws which had been framed by the UPA before this. All of these people or most of these people had been arrested by the UPA before this. Arun Ferreira had been arrested by the UPA and spent two years in jail and I think wrote a book about it as well, uh, which I recommend everyone should read. So the thing is, the problem is not this party or that party. This guy is a good person. That guy is a bad person. People respond to incentives. You need to change the incentives. When you have a structure of government where people have so much power, it will corrupt them, not in ways that, you know, financial corruption ki rent-seeking se paisa liya. It will corrupt them in a moral and philosophical sense. 
so and that moral and philosophical corruption becomes equally important uh, as much as financial corruption right it's far worse you know you could argue that for example that there are so many procedures and you know government makes it in so many areas so difficult to do things that that kind of uh, financial petty corruption is actually useful in making sure things happen otherwise they would get stuck forever i so you know that is a sort of perverse way of looking at corruption but petty corruption or even grand corruption when it comes to money is not as bad as the moral corrosiveness Uh, that is a more dangerous form of corruption because what does that do when the entire political system is like this it basically guarantees that anyone who enters politics is only entering politics with the wrong intentions because he's looking at the incentives in play uh, you know he doesn't want to serve the people per se he wants to or he doesn't want to you know make the world a better place and uh, so on and so forth all of those noble things he is driven by the lust for power he knows what it will take to get there which is a lot of dubious activity and when he gets there to stay in power he will have to you know pay back those favors that he's got along the way uh, deliver on all those quid pro quos and that's the whole system so you are in this system where you have a citizenry that is held captive by the state and this is the nature of the state and it is pretty depressing so given that this is pretty depressing what then gives us hope I think, how does public choice also gives us hope i mean is the field itself fairly depressing in that manner in how it diagnoses problems or it's speaking truth in the world uh, is full of suffering if we go back to the buddha well they do call economics a dismal science but i would say in this case uh, it gives us hope see what gives us hope is that what gives me hope is the india and against corruption movement for example now the movement was completely wrong minded because anna hazare and kejriwal lost the clue completely when they uh, talk of solving corruption by creating more government uh, right lokpal and lokpal so and more committees and more whatever and more oversight and you don't solve the problem of too much government by creating more government they miss the fact of the root causes of all of this that you need very limited government you need to remove discretion you need to whatever but what it indicated is that people were animated by the problem of corruption that they were willing to come out on the streets and they were willing to fight about it and take things into their own hand now it isn't that people are apathetic it isn't that people are giving up people care people suffer from this in their daily lives it's just that uh, they have an intuitive but simplistic understanding of what the problem is the problem is not bad people the problem is not this party bad that party good the problem is the incentives in play and if there is a greater understanding of this then perhaps they will start asking for the right things like already for example uh, you know and, and society does change like already we saw last year 377 disappearing let me tell you when i wrote my piece the matunga racket 10 12 years ago i never imagined the law will ever go i thought of the subject of the law going come up there will be all these traditionalist homophobes who will oppose uh, the striking down of 377 but it has gone and it has gone to widespread acclaim and you find bollywood and mainstream popular culture now treating homosexuality in a completely normal way like with the brilliant tv series uh, made in heaven or other movies that are getting made uh, and that is just brilliant it shows that society and culture can move in that positive direction towards freedom and if you think about it the strongest incentives in politics come from voters voters are indispensable in a democracy so if these ideas spread enough and things like yes minister and ji mantri ji and uh, ragdarbari do help in spreading these ideas across but if more of these ideas spread into the popular culture and people start understanding the importance of incentives and how to design systems then maybe there'll be popular outcry which comes out with the right solutions and we can be a great nation again do i sound inspiring enough for you to vote for me Maybe yeah if you're starting a liberal party a few years from now then I think you're on to something. Oh my god we have something here you heard it here first. Uh Amit uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on the Pragati podcast. Uh it's always a pleasure to have you back here. It's my privilege to be here Pawan thank you so much for having me. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or suggestions do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. You can follow the Pragati podcast on Instagram at Pragati Pod and you can follow me on Twitter at Zeus is Dead. That's Z E U S I S D E A D. The Pragati podcast is available on the IVM podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. Thank you.
Hey everybody. We have a brand new podcast series by Bloomberg Quint called BQ Conversations, which covers a range of topics like business strategies, latest trends in technology such as cybersecurity and artificial intelligence, and also personal finance. Episodes are out on the IVM podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune into Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. Hold up. 